tonight. We trust the Lord will bless our time together. And uh, I have to apologize for this morning. I, I was a little bit confused on my PowerPoint thing. I hadn't just polished it as well as I should have, and I understand I've spelled Boulevard wrong. But uh, I, I, I'm sure you'll forgive me for that. And um, we had a, a couple of good questions that already put in the box, which we're going to look at later on, uh, on Friday. And uh, I want to just, uh, maybe before we get into that, I just want to say something that I think is important for us as believers who attend assemblies. Um, historically, uh, assemblies and the Bible teachers associated with them have been known for clear Bible teaching and um, it's just sticking to the book. We've been known as people of the book. And I think to some degree we have also had a bit of a problem with arrogance and pride. And I, I was raised in, in an assembly after I got saved and I was exposed to a fair bit of this pride. There was an arrogance that came across the platform from many of the speakers. And in many ways they were looking down at other churches and condemning them and, and whatever motive behind it, I'm, I'm not sure. But but I want to just say this, that, that as the Lord gives us wisdom and instruction and light from his word, there should accompany that a humility and uh, an obedience and a non-judgmental assessment of other people. I, I believe that when the Lord gives us light and truth, it's our business just to do what the Lord tells us to do. And... I know there'll be others doing other things, but that's, I'm, I'm, I'm happy enough to just leave them with the Lord. But I'm happy enough also just to carry on as I feel the scriptures dictate to us. And if we be small, so be it. I'm happy to be that way. I'm just happy to be accompanied with other believers who have the same commitment. And so if we have been given some light, let's just go on with the Lord and obey that without looking down our noses at anyone else. And, and, I, and I say that to myself as well, because there is a tendency amongst us to, to be proud of, of some of the things that we have, and we have nothing to be proud of, not whatsoever. Now, there's a couple of questions that have already come up, and uh, one of them I've already had uh, planned to answer, this one on the Friday, and it has to do with uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, about headship and uh, the women's head covering. And it, it was basically, the question has to do with, um, is the woman's long hair uh, uh, sufficient as a covering? Isn't that what the Bible teaches? So we're going to look into that a little bit about the, the idea of the woman's uh, head covering and, and her hair as well. But there's another question that came in yesterday, or this morning that was actually very good, very, very difficult question. And to be honest, uh, some of these questions, the only answer that I can come up with is, I don't know. <laughs> and uh, the answer, the question that I'm going to suggest that the various believers here start preparing themselves for this, because we would like to maybe throw it open Friday uh, and get some help from various other students of the Word. And the question is this. It, it, it had to do with the slide where I was showing the universal church between the day of Pentecost and the rapture of the church in that period of time. And so the question was, does the universal church 
include the Old Testament saints? So that's a very good question. What about Abraham and, uh, and uh, Noah and Moses and these guys? Are they part of the church? Are they in some other camp? Are they all in heaven? These are questions that, that are really difficult, and uh, I, I'm hoping to get some answers and help from the rest of you folk here. So um, put, your, put that in your mind and, and look through the week, uh, and as we meet on Friday, I'm hoping to get some help from you folks as well. Now, um, this, this uh, evening, what we're going to do is we're going to continue with our, our Bible study, and we're just going to read this passage again. This is just the, our foundational passage. It was really the very first sermon that was preached to the church in Acts chapter 2. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they, that gladly received his word, were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about three thousand souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and in the breaking of bread and prayers. So this evening we're going to continue with our study with good questions that people ask. We're talking about people who have had no association with uh, an assembly of any type. They come from different denominations. And we, we often have visitors coming in. And, and, we're, and I would like to approach this subject with the questions that they normally ask when they first come into the place like this. And, and we've already discussed a little bit uh, this morning about the very first question that people seem to ask is, what denomination is this? And they want to know. They want to give us a tag. They want to know what, what sort of church we are. I, I probably didn't answer that as acceptably as some would like. But anyways, we did that this morning. But another question which we're going to look at now is, is who is your pastor? And we have many other questions that come to people's mind. Uh, why make so much about being born again? And why don't you baptize babies? Um, why do you have communion every week? Why not monthly or quarterly? What is with the ladies wearing something on their heads? Now, this is something that's quite unique to assemblies in the age that we live in today. It's unique. And we're going to look at that. Why do you not have women as elders? I thought the Bible teaches equality. Good question. And um, so, why do we do what we do? And this is something that we need to ask ourselves um, in the Old Testament. Uh, there was provision made when the younger folk, they would saw the ceremonies and they would ask, what mean this? And they were given a, a real good answer to their questions. And, and, and I think today that we live in this era when, uh, you know, the Apostle Paul said this, and the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. So there is a handing on of the biblical truths that we appreciate and hold dear, it's a, it's a matter of handing it on to you young guys who are coming up the ranks and will one day take on the reins of this assembly and, and lead it forward. And have you got your foundations? Have you paid the price for the truth that you have? You know, second generation Christians have a particular challenge in their lives because there's always that tendency to think, 
my dad, he learned it the hard way. Why can't I do it that way? Why do I have to do it his way? Why do I have to learn from him? Can't I just do it my own way and learn the hard way? Well, many of you have had to do it that way. But there is a, there is a, a challenge in which we need to um, pass on the baton to our younger brethren and the younger sisters so that they can carry on the work of the Lord as we pass on. So we're going to look at that. Why do we do what we do? Now we try to uh, open up this a little bit here. There are three reasons why we do things amongst us in the assemblies. There's three reasons. And the first one we looked at this morning was conviction. In other words, we're doing things, we practice certain things because they're based on the scriptures and they teach us to do these things in our Bibles. And then there's also tradition. We talked a little bit about tradition. Some traditions are very good and there's nothing wrong with them. And we should try and keep those traditions. There's no harm in that. But remember that traditions are up for negotiations. There are times when some traditions have to change uh, as culture changes, as we develop, as our society changes. Sometimes it calls for a, a different approach to the way we do things. And so our traditions have to be uh, remembered that, that they're only traditions. So we're talking about based on culture and habit. But then we also do things just out of preference. And, and I think we need to be honest with some of our young folk when they ask us some of our que- some questions. And, and um, I think we do them a disservice when we try and pull biblical reasons. Uh, you know, I've seen some guys and they'll try and get church truth out of the tale of Balaam's donkey. And you won't get it there. And, uh, and so we have to be careful that when we are answering the questions that people ask, that sometimes we just have to say, well, it's just how we decided to do things. There's no biblical reason for it. It's just the way we decided to do it. And there's nothing wrong with that based on practical considerations. Now, when it comes to conviction, I wanted to just uh, mention also that conviction, ha- or when we look at the Bible, there's two actually ways of looking at it. There is the descriptive there. Things in the scriptures, as we read the Bible, we see that there are certain things that are descriptive. In other words, it describes things that were done. Not necessarily teaching that that's how it should be done here, but there are descriptions, and that's where we need to be careful in defining some of that. But then there's also, and this is the important part, is there are things that are prescriptive. In other words, these are things that the apostles have felt and inspired by God that this is something we need to practice. This is something we need to hold to. And these are the truths that we're going to pass on to our younger folk. Prescriptive, and that is prescribes things that should be done. So we discussed this this morning, what denomination are you? And uh, who is your pastor? We're going to look at now. Um, In the will of the Lord on Wednesday, I want to look at the subject of the priesthood. And the fact that every believer is a priest. And we're going to ask the question, am I a priest? And some of the practical um, ramifications of the fact that you and I are as priests before God. What does that mean to me in the assembly? How do I function as a priest? And then uh, we're going to look at the thorny subject on Friday, the first session. I'm leaving on a cruise on Saturday on February 14th. Isn't that going to be nice? I'll be able to leave after we've stirred up all the dust here. Men and women in the Bible, uh, is there a difference? And we're going to talk about gender distinction and and some of those things. And um, 
Uh, hopefully I'll still have my skin when I leave here that, that evening. So tonight we're going to talk about who is your pastor. And uh, this is a very good question. I get asked that all the time. So who's the pastor of your church? And uh, I think before we, we get into that question, I would like for us just to think here, what is the biblical model for church leadership? That's basically what we're looking at here. When people ask us, who is your pastor, it opens up this whole subject of church leadership. And what is the biblical mandate for church leadership? Where do we get our ideas from? And there are basically two ideas, and and I want to sort of uh, emphasize what I believe to be the biblical one. Now, before we get into what it is, I would like for us, first of all, to find out what it is not. And... Uh, if we can get rid of some of these misconceptions first, it is helpful to identify what is true. So let's get rid of the rubbish first, and then we'll talk about what the real thing is. So one of the things that is a, a misconception that is in, in the evangelical world, in the church world in general, is that there is a distinction between the clergy and the laity. In other, words, in other words, those people that are responsible for handling the word of God and doing these spiritual things, uh, so-called spiritual things, they're of a, a different class than the rest of you sheep. That's, the, that's generally what's accepted in many, many churches. And there's a distinction between the clergy and the laity. Now, that's not what our Bible teaches. That's a misnomer. Let's, let's get that out. There is a special class of super-Christians who function as preachers and leaders in the church. That's not true either. Let's get that out of the way. Church leaders must have some degree in theology. Now that is often, often assumed that that must take place. Church leaders must be ordained by some Bible school or seminary. These are things that are normally accepted in most many, many denominations and 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 uh, these are mandated these are things that are most important and it has to be done before you can fulfill your work as a as a preacher or a teacher of the word in many many churches but i love this verse here because i am i fit in here so nicely people ask me what bible school did you go to and I say this, I'm probably a bit arrogant when I say that. I, I just say, well, I went to the same one Peter went to. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men. Now, that's me. And that might be some of you here today. And, 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 and I am so thankful to the Lord. I'm linked with a group of believers that seem to be following the scriptures. And the scriptures don't dictate that I need to have a degree conferred upon me some by some seminary. Just as Peter, who was one of the greatest evangelists, one of the greatest leaders in the early church, he had no theological training whatsoever. He was uneducated and untrained, but the men marveled and they realized that he had been with Jesus. And you know what? That is the greatest qualification of any servant of the Lord is that you spend time with the Lord. It doesn't matter what Bible school you've gone to. And I'm not saying you shouldn't or couldn't go to a Bible school. That's, that's fine. That's another thing. But this, the thing is this. Does that mean 
does that qualify me, if I've got a degree, does that qualify me to be amongst the Lord's people as a leader? Well, according to the Bible, it doesn't. So let me just look very quickly here. And again, this is not judgmental. And please forgive me if if you feel offended by this. I'm not trying to offend anyone. This is just simply an observation of what I would see in a typical evangelical church down the road, wherever they might be, this is how I, would, how I understand they function. Uh, they normally have a senior pastor. Then they would have uh, a youth pastor, a children's pastor, or some other pastor who works under the senior pastor. Then they have elders, and then they have deacons, and then they have the members of the church. Now that is normally how most evangelical churches work. And uh, I want to just go back to the scriptures now. And I'm not condemning this. In many ways this is fulfilling the scriptures. In some ways it isn't. But I want to just uh, uh, go back now to the scriptures. And we're going to look at one verse in particular that sort of brings... Um, some titles forward for us to examine and see how the New Testament church functioned and who were their leaders amongst them. So in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul says this, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops, and deacons. Now I'm reading from the King James versions. Many of you have different versions, but I'm going to be referring to the King James in this because we need some sort of a, a standard to go on so we can compare things, all right? So we talk about saints, bishops, and deacons, all right? Now, first of all, what on earth is a saint? Uh, saints literally means, the word saint literally means a holy one. And uh, there is a common misconception regarding being a saint. Um, It is this here. um, During Pope John Paul II's 2005 funeral, crowds at the Vatican shouted, Santo Subito. Now, I'm not Italian, so I'm maybe not saying it right. Santo Subito. Demanding he be made a saint immediately. They were crying this out, chanting this out at his funeral. The late Pope John Paul II moved a big step closer to Roman Catholic sainthood. This is Reuters in 2011. And then finally, you have on CNN, Pope John Paul II is made a saint on uh, on, sorry on May May 1st, 2011. Now. That is, in many ways, what the world has an idea, what they think of as a saint. And many people come in here, and if you tell them you're a saint, they think, oh, come on, what are you talking about? But I want to tell you today, from the biblical perspective, from Philippians chapter 1, where Paul wrote to the saints at Philippi, what does that really mean? It means, literally, holy ones. Now, I don't know about you, but I get excited about this, because... Right now, God looks down upon me, and he sees me as a saint. Now, you may not see me as that. I hope you, you know, I know my wife doesn't see me as that. But, but, but I, I don't, I, I do care how she thinks. But you know what's really important? What does God think? 
And God sees us who are believers in Christ as saints. He sees us as holy ones. Now, have you appreciated that today? Have you understood and appreciated that the work of Christ was so sufficient, so complete, so adequate, that it has transformed you from a sinner to a saint? Now, that's good news. I am so glad that there is no sin that can be traced to me anymore as far as God is concerned. Now, I know practically that's a different thing. But positionally, how I stand before God, I am a saint. I am considered a holy one. Now, Romans chapter 1, verse 7, he says this, To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called saints. That's every believer is called a saint, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, saints literally means holy ones. And, um, and I want us just to understand that William MacDonald, this is how William MacDonald in his uh, commentary, he, he identifies it this way. Saints are people who have been separated to God from the world. It is a name which is applied in the New Testament to all born-again believers. So we are saints. Now that's a wonderful, beautiful truth that you and I can hold on to as our position before God is that we are saints before him. There is no sin that separates us anymore. It's all been done, judged in the person of the Lord Jesus. Now this other term that we have, the second term, is called deacons. Now what is that? The the term deacon literally means a servant. That's really what it means. You can just put the word servant in there, and that's what it means. The term deacon literally means a servant. The deacons were servants of the church who were chiefly concerned with its material affairs, such as finances, etc., and other practical matters like that. Now, we have the first idea of a deacon being presented in Acts chapter 6, verse 1. And let's just read that for a moment. Uh, Acts chapter 6, verse 1. And in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren... Look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. So there's the word serve there, is, uh, is, is the verb to, to deaconize, to, to, to act as a deacon. But really what's in view here is this. There was a problem had occurred in the early church. The Greek-speaking Jewish ladies, widows, felt that they had not been receiving uh, the same assistance that the Hebrew-speaking widows were receiving from the church. Now, the church had taken upon themselves to, to help these poor widows in the assembly. And um, they, there was some presumption, or uh, at least it looked that way, that the Greek-speaking widows were not taking, given a fair shake. And so the apostles called the the twelve together, they called the company together, and they they wanted to appoint seven men 
who were going to take the affairs of this business. And this was the, really the start of the idea of a deacon. And they handled some of these practical, uh, everyday things that were part of the functioning of an assembly. Now, does every assembly need deacons? I would say no. Um, it depends on the size. For example, the one that we're looking at here in verse 1, it says, and in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied. So there was a, a good number of people in the assembly at this time. So there was just too much work for the elders or the apostles at that time to conduct the work that they had to do. And so if they did a sufficient job of handling these ministration things, the, the word of God would have suffered. And so they wanted to prioritize their time in teaching and preaching the word of God and left these things up to other men, spiritual men, who could handle some of these details. Now, when we first started in Maun, um, we were just a small group of believers and there was no need for deacons to be appointed. And, and as things develop and grow, then uh, an assembly would require deacons. So this is something that we have uh, learned here. Now, let's move on to this subject here. And this is by far the more interesting and I think probably the more uh, something that we need to understand. It is this idea of bishops. Now, the word bishop is an unfortunate translation and it, it occurs in our King James Version. And I'll explain to you in a moment why we have that word bishop in our translations in a moment. But the original Greek word for bishop is episkopos. It comes from uh, two, two Greek words. Episkopos is derived from two words. Uh, epi meaning over and skopio meaning to see, look or watch. Okay? So that is the word that has been translated bishop. Okay? So the question is this. Uh, it literally means uh, uh, the idea is literally an overseer. That's the literal meaning of the word episcopus, is, is someone who looks over. It's an overseer. And that's according to Vine's Dictionary of New Testament Words. So episcopus. In the King James Bible, it is translated, it occurs five times, and it's translated this way. Three times it's translated bishop in First Timothy, Titus, and First Peter. Okay? One time it is translated bishops in the book of Philippians, chapter 1, verse 1, which we've already read. And then one time it is translated overseer, and that's in Acts chapter 20, verse 28. So my question to you this, this evening is this, why was the word bishop used in the King James Version? It had nothing to do with, our, 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 uh, with the literal meaning of the word as overseer, where did this word bishop come from and why was it used and employed in the King James translation? So I want us just to remember that King James I, just over 400 years ago, had decided that there is time for a new translation. And that's where we get our King James version from, King James I. He was the one who who had it uh, authorized. And um, he gave the translators 14 rules that they must follow when they translate and make this new version available to the people. And the third rule was this. 
the terms describing church officers were to be kept as they were in the Church of England at that day. So there were certain terms that were used in the Church of England 400 years ago. And in order for the king not to ruffle the feathers of these authorities, he made sure that they kept the same terms that they used, the same uh, uh, terms that describe these church officers. They had to use those terms and employ those terms in the translation. So that's why the word episkopos, which should be translated overseer, they thought, you know what? Let's stick bishop in there. That'll, that'll, that'll keep them happy. And so that's where the word bishop comes from. It has absolutely nothing to do with, with uh, the real translation of the thing. So that's why we don't call those who are elders in our midst today, we don't call them bishops, because that's really not what the biblical text wants us to do. That's not what they're called. They're actually called overseers. Okay, Now, the word bishop was one of these terms. So. Now, let's look at this again. Bishops and overseers, they're, they're, they're used the same. The New Testament overseer were godly, mature men who exercised spiritual leadership in the local church. They are also spoken of as elders, pastors, and shepherds. All right? Now, the question who is your pastor, is going to be answered now as we look into this. Biblical terminology of church leaders. I want us just to think of the, the different terms that we use. This is I'm just sticking to the book, okay? Biblical terminology. First of all, we have the reference pastors, found in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. We have elders mentioned in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. And then we also have overseers mentioned in 1 Timothy chapter 3, which is also slash bishop, okay? Now, I want us to look at those three terms, a pastor, an elder, and an overseer, all right? And these three different terms bring a different image to this work. So first of all, a pastor is someone who has the spiritual care and feeding of the sheep. That's what's in view when you talk about the pastor. A pastor is someone who has the spiritual care and feeding of the sheep. When we talk about elders, what is in view here is more their maturity. Maturity and spiritual wisdom in guiding the sheep. So we have... A difference now. The pastor is someone who has a spiritual care and feeding of the sheep. The elder is someone who it speaks of his maturity and wisdom as he spiritually guides the sheep. And then we have overseer, which is the spiritual eye over, uh, looking over and protecting the sheep. So three different terms that would give three different images of the type of work that they are involved in. So you have the idea of spiritual care, you have the idea of maturity, and you also have the idea of watching over and being uh, defending and protecting. So the big question this evening that is really going to 
that, that really where we are going to separate from what many evangelical churches uh, uh, believe and what we believe is this. The big question is this. Elders, pastors, and overseers. Do these terms describe three different men? Okay. And that is what most evangelical churches believe. Or... Do these terms describe three different aspects of the same man? All right? Now, that's the big, that's the crux of the thing, all right? I want us just to make sure we get this clear in our thinking. Do these terms, elders, pastors, and overseers, do these terms describe three different men, three different offices, three different types of work? Or do these terms describe three different aspects of the same person, of the same work. Now, I believe that these three terms describe three different aspects of the same person, of the same work. Now, I'm going to prove it to you from two passages. There's two um, uh, lengthy passages that commit themselves to the definition of church leadership. And the first one that I'm going to look at is 1 Peter chapter 5. And you will, I hope, appreciate that as we go through this, that we're talking about the same person, but there's different imagery coming through. Now, let me just read it with you first, and then I'm going to read it slowly and bring out different words and show you what I'm talking about. 1 Peter chapter 5 and 1 says this, The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear... Ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Now, let's put up beside there the three different terms that we're talking about, okay? There's the elder, which has reference to his maturity. There's the overseer that has reference to the fact that he's looking over, he's protecting. And then there's the pastor, shepherd, which is the the idea of, of feeding and tending the flock, okay? Now, in our passage here in First Peter, I want you just to see that, see, Peter's talking about the same individual here, and look what, how he describes them. First of all, you have the term elder come up, and that brings before us the very first term, isn't it? Elder. And then it says here, which am also an elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also... Uh, a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Then it says, feed. Now there you have the term that a shepherd is used to feed his flock. And then the next thing, flock. It has the imagery of sheep and a pastor. And then the next thing we have here, all of a sudden now you talk about oversight. So now you're talking about an overseer. And we move on and it says here, Again, the image of a flock is brought before us. And again, the chief shepherd, 
uh, that shall uh, that have before us. So here you have in one passage where Peter is describing the work of a leader, he is using imagery that brings before us an elder, an overseer, and a shepherd or a pastor. All three of them are the same man. These are all looked at as being one individual. Okay. Now, let's look at the second passage. And again, we'll read it to you first. Acts chapter 20, verse 17. You remember that this is Paul on his, I think it's his third missionary journey. And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. And he says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers to feed the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch, therefore watch, uh, and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn every one of you night and day with tears. So there's no question here, I, I think, that the group of men that Paul has invited to come to where he is were the elders, right? He wrote and he asked for the elders of the church to come. So what does he say about these elders? Now let's look at the terms again. We have elders, we have overseers, and we have pastor shepherds. So the first time, right away, you have the idea of elders, okay? He's called for the elders of the church. And then he says to them, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock. So right away, the image of a pastor and sheep are brought before us. Uh, over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers. So here you have the three terms right away. Elder, pastor, and overseer are used to describe the same persons, the same people. And they are told to feed the church of God. That again has the imagery of a, of a pastor, shepherd, and, um, which he has purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves. Now wolves again brings the imagery of a, of a pastor and sheep and trying to protect them and, and keep them safe. Not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things, drawing away disciples after them. Therefore watch. That is the idea of an overseer. And remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. So the question, who is your pastor? Remember we, we looked at the beginning and, and what often people think is that there's your pastor, then there's the elders, and then there's the deacons and the members, etc., etc. I, I would suggest to you that this is where we are different in many ways. And, and I believe we have the biblical mandate for it that an elder and a pastor are the same individual. They're not two different individuals. And that would be something that is unique amongst us as assemblies, okay? And we have the scriptures to back ourselves up here. Let's hold on to those things. So the idea, who is your pastor, the biblical model for church leadership is a group of men. It's not one man. It's a group of men. 
in every example that we have in our Bibles, there's always a plurality in the leadership. And, I mean, really, what one man can be the answer? I mean, what... God in his wisdom has devised it so that there be a a plurality of men with their various gifts and that complement each other and they together as a body of men will go before the uh, lead the flock of God. So the biblical model for church leadership is a group of men who have a pastoral, pastoral heart to nurture and feed God's people the maturity and spiritual wisdom to guide God's people, the spiritual eye to oversee and protect God's people. Now, I'm closing a bit earlier tonight. And I just want to just bring this to us today, just to refresh and to to confirm that the things that we've held on to do have biblical mandate. And I hope that you can go home from here tonight knowing why when we have three men here who are leading the assembly, they are known as a shepherd, a pastor. They are also known as overseers. And they're also known as elders. And we would encourage our younger men as well to look carefully at these different qualities that are required in an overseer, in a pastor, and in an elder and, and prepare yourself and be before the Lord about this. Is this what God has called me to do so that I might be able to help out in the things of God? You know, these guys are getting older. Uh, right, bro? And uh, they're not going to be around forever. And we need younger men who are... Who are and, and you know what? Don't wait till Malcolm's dead, alright? There needs to be a transition time where younger men who are prepared and, and are showing some interest and show, showing some gift in this area, you know, there may be a time when you start to meet with the elders. That doesn't make you an elder. But you meet with the elders to, to try and learn from them and to, and to gain some insight from them and to, and to be able to, to feel their pain. And you know what? I think we really need to pray for these elders and pray for these young men. But you know what? I think that there's something missing here. And I don't think that we pray for elders' wives the way we ought to. You know, these women have made big sacrifices. Where's your husband? Oh, he's off to this meeting. He's at that. He's visiting this person. He's doing this. And he's at that. You know... The unsung heroes, really, I believe they are. And we need as assemblies, as a congregation, to remember our sisters who, who are bearing quietly the brunt. I mean, when these guys get together and hash out some difficulties and, 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 and get into the nitty-gritty of people's personal problems and things like that, and they come home and, and they're battered, and, and who has to listen to them? It's their women their wives and I really do think that we need to just recognize this and pray for these for these dear ladies now I want to invite you once again the question box at the back if there's any question in relating to some of these things that we're talking about I would invite you to write down a question put it in the box you don't need to put your name to it and there's no dumb questions all right I've asked them already so there's no dumb questions 
Just put it in there and we'll try and handle them in the will of the Lord. Let's just bow our heads and pray. Father, we just thank you again for your word. We thank you that it is clear, it's concise and helpful, and it corrects our thinking, Lord. We know oftentimes we get uh, strayed away by the ideas of man and by our own ideas. And Lord, we pray that we would be given fresh truth, fresh revelation, have our eyes opened afresh to your scriptures. And then having that revelation, Lord, in humility, go forward to obey the word. We thank you for the assembly here at Boulevard, and we pray for our believers here. We pray for the the men who take on responsibility, and we know that their reward is great. And their burdens, Father, are often hard to bear, and we pray for them. We pray for their wives, Lord. Give them the wisdom. Give them the spiritual understanding, the patience, and the love for you to make this sacrifice. We commit them to you. And now, Father, we look to you for your blessing upon this evening. We commit ourselves into your hands. In the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you very much.